Uninformed immigrants are at a huge disadvantage in court, in financial and legal matters, and also sometimes in life. Well, what can we do about it? I'll tell you what. We can train, teach, inspire, and empower immigrants to maximize their lives regardless of their immigration status. And that's exactly what we're going to do here. I am your immigration lawyer and host, Otis Landerholm, and this is the Empowered Immigrant Podcast. Two, one. All right. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Welcome to another episode of the Empowered Immigrant Live. My name's Otis Landerholm. I am your host. I'm the founding attorney of Landerholm Immigration APC, where we fight for your American dream. And uh, happy Thursday morning. Um, it's a beautiful day here in the Bay Area. And, uh, and I really appreciate your joining me today. Welcome to everyone on uh, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube. Like, really, thank you all so much for being here with me. Today, our theme on the Empowered Immigrant Live is what is the permanent bar? And we're going to talk about the permanent bar. A lot of people uh, have questions about the permanent bar. A lot of people believe that they're eligible for a benefit and then aren't because of the permanent bar. The permanent bar is a frustrating piece of law, and we're going to talk about it today. All right, so thank you so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully, I can clarify the way the law works. All right, so welcome. Thanks for being here. All right, so the, um, the Empowered Immigrant Live is here to train, teach, inspire, and empower immigrants to make the most out of immigration law and to make the most out of their lives. Today our theme is, what is the permanent bar? My question for you is, do you want to get a green card? All right, Is this your year to apply for something, to come out of the shadows, to, to try to fix your immigration status, your immigration legal issue? All right, Because if so, my advice is to go for it, and I would love to help you with that. My firm is on a mission to win 10,000 immigration cases in the next 10 years, and we would love for your case to be one of them. And, um, and so welcome, and thank you, and thank you for joining, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. So um, I often like to do an empowerment tip but I'm not going to today. Instead, today I'm going to just share an announcement. All right, it's the 11th of May of 2023, and you've got to know what's happening a little bit. All right, and what I'm talking about is it's in the news. It's at the um, it's at the border. It's kind of a big deal. Title 42 is ending today. All right, and so what Title 42 is, remember, is it's a separate uh, uh, kind of uh, section of the United States Code of the law that uh, allows for the government to uh, put additional security measures in place on the border, for example, during a global health pandemic. All right? And so Title 42 was activated during COVID-19, and now 
on May 11th of 2023, it is formally ending at the border. All right. So you might say, yay, it's ending. We're past the pandemic formally as a country, right? That's a good thing, right? Um, but what does that actually mean? Well, in, in legal terms, just the ending of Title 42 doesn't mean too much. Quite honestly, if you're just talking legal terms, what you're doing is you're shifting from Title 42 uh, border processing laws to the normal Title 8 processing laws, which are the same laws that have been in effect forever. All right? So it's sort of like going back to the way the law always was and was intended to be as passed by Congress when Congress passed the Immigration Nationality Act in 1965. All right? So, so thinking about it from that perspective, legally, it's not big news. It's kind of like, okay, we're going back to the law. We're going back to the way the law was written, really, the way the law was intended. And, but what the fear out there is and what's the news about it is that, okay, there have been so many immigrants wanting to enter the U.S. that were pushed back and excluded, some might say unlawfully excluded, by Title 42, that now that we switch to Title 8, it's like, okay, there's this fear that there's going to be a lot of human beings wanting to, uh, wanting to now come in and assert their right to file for asylum under U.S. law and under international law, okay? And so because of that kind of fear and because of that kind of circumstance, the Biden administration uh, and the government is making changes to the asylum process, uh, even to the immigration court process, that will affect your case if you have one of those types of cases, all right? That mainly, the government is shifting resources from within the interior of the country to put more energy and attention on the border. So asylum officers will be dedicating part of their time to dealing with border cases. Immigration judges will be dealing with part of their time to handle border cases. Um, they're putting a lot of attention on the border. All right, and I'll do a separate video that really will show you what the, the government is setting up um, and how they're limiting um, asylum-seeking rights, which really is dangerous, right? It's a da that's a dangerous political move, uh, a dangerous policy change, and I'll talk about that in more depth in another, uh, in another video. It's outside of what I want to really get into today. But if you want to see that, kind of just interjecting here, you know, to see any video from our firm, my best advice there is to go to our firm's YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button, all right? And I'll talk about that as I wrap up. But, you know, if you want to know what's going on on the border and how it might affect you, like, subscribe to our YouTube channel because I'm going to be posting about that issue, okay? So, um, just that, just that. So uh, now I'm going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about, and if you have questions about that, hey, send me your questions, right? We're live, so I'm okay to take questions as you have them, okay? So now I'm going to switch gears, though, and I'm going to talk about the theme for today, which is the permanent bar, okay? 
And I want to tell you, all right, I'll start with a story. Yesterday in our firm, a woman was in our firm. She's the daughter of a U.S. citizen, young woman. She's turned 21. She petitioned for her father, all right? But her father went to the U.S. consulate, and they denied her father's case. Okay, they denied it. Now, she, as the petitioner, the daughter, didn't have a lawyer through the process. She thought it was going to be easy. She thought that she could do it themselves. She's obviously smart, right? But looking at the denial, the issue was that the father was caught crossing the border once in 1998, and he was expeditiously removed. He was deported at the border, okay? And then he had re-entered the country just in the next week and was here where he had a family, gave birth to his daughter, uh, was here for years and years and years before returning voluntarily um, uh, to Mexico. All right? And so that was his situation. That's, that was his situation. And so when he re-entered the U.S. after the expedited removal, he triggered the, ter- the permanent bar. He's permanently barred. He's not eligible for a green card through his um, U.S. citizen daughter. And that's like, you know, I had to communicate that in a consult or my, my team. It wasn't actually me. It was my team communicated that in our office to the daughter. The daughter's crying, right? Because it's like the, the, the truth of the law became clear. Became clear to her. And it's like, man, I really wish that she had had at least a consultation with an attorney who knows what they're doing from the beginning. She could have known this from the beginning and then strategize about it. Okay? So anyway, so that happened. So what is the permanent bar? All right? Well, this, is, this is a unlawful presence bar is what I'm talking about. And really what we're talking about when we use the term permanent bar, what we're talking about is we're talking about a specific provision in the Immigration Nationality Act. And if you want to get specific, specific, we're talking about Section 212A9C. All right? And so we're talking Section 212A9C. And I've got the code here. And I want to walk through it with you so that it's clear what 212A9C really says. All right? What it says is any alien, any immigrant who... One, has been unlawfully present in the United States for an aggregate period of a year or more, right? Or two, has been ordered removed, either expeditiously removed or ordered removed by a judge. And, so either, either of those, and who enters or attempts to re-enter the United States unlawfully without being admitted or ins- uh, inspected or admitted is inadmissible. It's an inadmissibility ground. It's permanent. There's no, there's no like, waivers for it. Um, and that's the way it is, right? Now, um, I said that there's no waivers for it, um, and I'm going to clarify that, 
Okay, I'm going to clarify that. So, um, because, you know, is the permanent bar really permanent? I mean, it's an inadmissibility ground forever. But the law does allow people, if you've been outside the United States for 10 years, if, you're, if you can show that you've been physically outside and maintaining your residency outside the United States over a period of 10 years, then you're allowed to file what's called an I-212 waiver to re-enter the U.S. Okay? So just so I'm speaking clearly, the permanent bar is either you were unlawfully present in the U.S. for more than a year, added up, might be multiple trips that added up to over, over 365 days, right? Or if you have a removal order from a judge, either of those situations, or even a removal order at the border, a removal order, and then after that, you re-enter or attempt to re-enter re without permission, boom, you trigger a permanent inadmissibility. Okay? And so that's like, that's, you've got to understand that. And it, it's, it's a, a very, you know, this was created in 1996 uh, as part of a, what I would describe as very bad law. All right? It's bad policy. Like, there should be exceptions. Congress, presidents, lawmakers, listen to me. There should be exceptions to the permanent bar. All right, there should be waivers. What if somebody's married to a U.S. citizen? They can't waive the permanent bar, right? Was that important, right? Like, if you, the way it works is if, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen, it doesn't matter, right? Even if you have U.S. citizen children who depend on you, it doesn't matter. You will not be eligible for a green card or a visa. You'll be inadmissible permanently because of a reentry after one year of unlawful presence, or after even an expedited removal order, just one of these short, they didn't even get to see a judge argue anything, right? Now, um, so that's, that's the way it works, all right? So um, is there anything else that people can do to get around the permanent bar? So yes, yes. U visas can waive the permanent bar. And the idea, like, from policy there is to get a U visa, you have to have been the victim of a crime and have helped the police in the investigation or the prosecution of the crime. So you have to have helped with, cooperated with law enforcement here in the U.S. And if so, then law enforcement will be like, hey, thanks for helping. Yeah, we'll waive the permanent bar for you if you otherwise qualify. All right? Asylum can, uh, you can win asylum even with a permanent bar also, but it's very risky and very difficult to qualify for. Most people lose, all right? Cancellation of removal in immigration court if you have 10 years in the U.S. and otherwise qualify, which is very difficult to qualify for and very risky to seek, um, could also overcome a permanent bar in certain situations. But other than that, it's permanent and it's nasty. And I wish it were, I wish it were different. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say. That's, that's basically all I wanted to say today. Um, so um, strategy, right? The, it's so important to ask for FOIAs 
at the beginning of a case so that we can see if there was an expedited removal in the record, right? This, this young woman who, who um, consulted with our office, like if she had hired us from the beginning, we would have requested FOIAs for her father. We would have seen that there was a expedited removal order and we would have known that there was a permanent bar so that we would advise them that, hey, the only way to fix this is if he remains outside the U.S. for 10 years. At least if they know that, they can make a fully informed decision, right? Like, is he going to go and stay in Mexico for 10 years? Or is he going to stay in the United States without fixing his green card? The choice is his then, right? It gives people the power of choice, right? But if you don't know the law, if you're not clear on your legal situation because you haven't done FOIAs or you haven't done even a consultation to really talk it through, then you're, 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 you're up to the whim. Like, it's like you're not empowered as you go through your process. Okay? And this being the Empowered Immigrant Live, it's like I want, you to, I want you to know what your rights are. I want you to know what your options are. I want you to know how the government is going to think about your case before you decide whether or not you want to do it. Okay? So that's that. That's that. That's all I got today. If you have questions, send them my way. Uh, Christopher Carvajal, I see you there. Thank you for asking yours. You said, what about voluntary return on the border? Very good. All right. Expedited removal order is a deportation order where now if you, uh, you know, are, have a removal order and then re-enter, you trigger the permanent bar. Voluntary return at the border where they say, hey, go back to Mexico right? And now, and then you come in unlawfully afterwards, it's, it doesn't have the same consequence, all right? But that's what we've got to run the FOIAs to make sure that it was one and not the other, all right? Because sometimes those two processes feel very similar. Uh, a person, you know, uh, often still has their fingerprints taken. They often meet with an officer. They often have a, li a little bit of a process at the border, um, some people, one of the ways you can tell the difference, this is going off track a little bit, but one of the ways you can tell the difference is if the officer gives you the, the five-year inadmissible paper, then that's an expedited removal order. All right? When it's a voluntary return, they typically don't give you any type of uh, document, and they don't, like, they don't process it to cause inadmissibility. So those are things to be aware of. Christopher, thank you for asking that question. I appreciate that. Um, we had another question earlier. Let me see if I can find it. Um, from, I think, it's, I think it's Mr. Silvestre Guivens. Is that, do I say that name right? You say, I'm here with my family, my wife, my two daughters. I'd like to know if we must make one application for asylum for all, all of us or one for each person? Okay, this is a great question. Thank you so much for asking this question. So it's a little bit tricky. The, the best, uh, like legally, if you're the only person who faced the persecution, harm, threats, violence in your country, then, um, then you can file for asylum and you can include your minor children and your spouse as derivatives in your application. But read the instructions to the form because it says that you've got to attach at least, I think it's the first three pages, 
of form I-589. Double check the form, the instructions for the form, because they do update and change those instructions. But you've got to you've got to submit an additional packet for each derivative along with your application. So when it's a family of four, it's sometimes like this much paper, right? It can be a very uh, large amount of documents that gets submitted to the government when, um, when you actually file the case, okay? And strategically, if it's not just you who've received the threats and the harm and the violence and the, the persecution in your country, but say your spouse also did, then you each could file affirmative cases, including each of your children as derivatives, and now you've got like two legal arguments that you can make to help improve your family's chances. So that's a strategic thing I wanted to share, all right? And it depends on the specific facts of your uh, family's uh, situation, your circumstances, okay? Very good. It looks like those are the only questions that I've received. And so thank you so much for everyone for being here. Uh, Maritza, I see you here on Instagram. And Emmanuel Figueroa, thank you. I see you here on Instagram. And Paul, uh, Bond Servant, I see you here on Instagram. Thank you for being here. Everybody on TikTok, thank you for being here. And YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, like, hey, welcome. And thank you all so much. Um, so that's it for today. If this was useful, Please give us a thumbs up or a heart or whatever on your application, all right? I do want to also promote next week, we're putting on a U-Visa webinar. It's in Spanish at 4 p.m. on Wednesday of next week, the 17th of May. If you're filing a U-Visa and if you want to ask questions about a U-Visa, you know, it's free. Come join us. Come check it out. And that should be in the description of the video, or if not, you could, you could tune into our website. We'll have uh, information about that. Um, I see another question here uh, from Quinn. Quinn, thank you for asking this. You say, if a person is admissible for any reason, for example, false claim to citizenship. Okay, so the word should be inadmissible. If a person is inadmissible for any reason, for example, a false claim to citizenship, but qualifies for VAWA, can they potentially apply for VAWA without trying to adjust status if approved would they have work authorization under a VAWA approval? This is a great question. VAWA is a discretionary benefit. So false claims to citizenship, like theoretically, you can submit the I-360 of the VAWA uh, 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 petition, right, to the Vermont Service Center. You can apply for VAWA um, even if you have inadmissibility grounds, and you just might not be eligible to adjust status through it but it's a discretionary analysis, right? Aside from showing that you've been um, married, living in marital union, a person of good moral character, and subjected to abuse or extreme cruelty in your relationship with a United States citizen or green card holder, aside from showing all of that, you've also got to show that you merit a favorable exercise of discretion. So if you, depending on what your inadmissibility ground is, for example, false claim to citizenship, that will cut against your discretionary arguments. So when you file, you're going to need to show extra uh, evidence of good moral character, things of this nature, that you warrant a favorable exercise of discretion from the asylum officer. But as long as you get that I-360 approved, yes, that comes. you can uh, get a work permit. 
you won't be eligible for a green card, though, because you have permanent inadmissibility um, if it's a false claim to citizenship. Great question, though. Quinn, thank you for asking that. All right, I appreciate that. So, um, cool. Everybody, thank you all so much for being here. If this was at all useful, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Um, and, and when you do, click the notifications bell in YouTube so that you can receive additional updates and news. We're going to be submitting additional updates and news here, um, uh, possibly even today, um, but soon, because I'm recording videos today about what's happening um, at the border. And if you have an immigration case, please give us a call. All right. We are here to help. We would love to help. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.